0: Welcome to the special season of Lo and Behold. We're a bit and Grain podcast about North Carolina, and you're listening to the second of a three-part series on the 1997 Fisheries Reform Act, a massive five-part bill passed by the North Carolina General Assembly and signed into law by Governor Jim Hunt in 1997. This legislation changed the way the state protected and managed coastal fisheries, a controversial topic back then and a controversial topic now.
1: Things were changing such that there was it was like trying to stop the flood it just there was no way they could have stopped it. But I know there was a lot of trepidation and there still is. You had to stop it
2: because otherwise what you're trying to manage is a moving target. Well there really
3: wasn't any bad blood that I knew anything about or nobody around here knew anything about until they uh, until the moratorium process happened.
0: Welcome to Part 2, Fishing as Religion. In Part 1 of this series, we explored the forces that pushed the state towards major reform depleted fish stocks, massive fish kills, a national movement for fisheries reform, the rise of recreational fishing in North Carolina, and a lot of press coverage. All of these led up to a radical moment in fisheries policy in 1994 a moratorium issued by the General Assembly that paused the sale of commercial fishing licenses and additional regulation while a team of diverse individuals closely examined fisheries policy in North Carolina. The General Assembly formed a moratorium steering committee to create a new comprehensive fishery management plan for North Carolina, one that addressed the interests of recreational fishermen and commercial fishermen while also protecting our coastal resources. No small task. Moratorium Steering Chairman Bob Lucas people from uh, habitat
2: and water quality background, uh, professors, uh, scientists, commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen, quite a crowd. And all of these people were leaders. So if they're a leader, they got something to say. So that means we had lots of folks and some want to speak louder than others. So you know just having a meeting was a task in itself much less this committee is going to be charged with the responsibility of coming up with a plan to do all fisheries in the future. I mean, that was hugely ambitious.
0: The steering committee was charged with tackling several key problems at the root of the moratorium. Back then, we'd lost track of the health of our fisheries, jeopardized the health of our waters with pollution, overfished, and ineffectively regulated our fisheries. The Fisheries Reform Act grew from a two-year period of research and public engagement that sought to engage all stakeholders in solutions to these problems, and the process revealed serious tension and competing ideas about who and how our coastal waters should be fished.
4: is the same down east hearing that one of the wives got up and spoke on behalf of the commercial fishing industry. She talked about what it was like to be the wife who watched her husband put on those boots and that slicker, that Macintosh and pack that lunch and say goodbye and know that he was going to be gone for three or four days and it was a stormy night because if he didn't go and if he didn't catch, they weren't going to be able to pay their light bill. And you heard about a lifestyle that was really lived on a shoestring, but that was so at risk. There were very few success stories in terms of getting rich in the commercial industry, very few.
0: That's former North Carolina Governor Beth Perdue, who was a state senator at the time. She's talking about one of 19 public forums held by the Moratorium Steering Committee. The 19 forums were designed to give citizens an opportunity to represent their interest. And to this day, members of the Steering Committee look back on that period with pride. Former Steering Committee member B.J. Copeland.
5: Through that process, we began to understand one another. And it took us a while. I mean, We had a lot of public hearings from Asheville to the coast. And we didn't always come to the same point
0: but we begin to understand one another. Over 1,200 people attended these public meetings. So much was up for debate, and the process was emotional. Who could obtain a commercial fishing license, and would there be a cap on those licenses? What gear could commercial and recreational fishermen use? How often would fishery data be updated? How would fishery regulation be handled in the future? The moratorium process revealed stark differences between two big stakeholder groups, commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen. Net manufacturer Melvin Shepard remembers commercial fishermen being concerned about access to fish.
2: Fisheries Reform Act was brought about by objection to all these guys catching all our fish that we want to catch recreationally. At the very outset, there was an effort to remove all inside fishing with nets and trawling.
0: Commercial fishermen, the guys who fish for a living, felt like the recreational fishermen, the guys who fish for fun, wanted to curb their industry and ability to make a living. Up until this point, the two fishing communities coexisted without much drama. Commercial fishing activist and member of the Carteret County Fishermen's Association, a commercial fishing organization, Pam Morris.
3: Nobody really even thought about recreational people. They weren't, there weren't no problems there that anybody ever knew about. These people were the only ones with any problems. I mean, it was always whatever conflict there were, it was between commercial fishermen. It was never involving a a recreational fisherman. I mean, those were the people we saw coming to the fish house for bait or wanting a clue or two on where to catch, you know, whatever fish they were looking for at the time. So I never really heard anything about this until the moratorium process began. And I don't think I was alone in that.
0: It's not a stretch to say commercial fishing communities felt their way of life was under attack. Here's Sandy Siemens Ross, who was communications director for the Trade Association for Commercial Fishing.
6: Fisheries vary so much from the Virginia line to South Carolina line that each one has unique problems and, and situations. But a good bit of my time was going out to all the small fishing groups and talking to them. I would ask them what, what their top three priorities were, what things they could live with, and what things that was just going to do them in. They, they were afraid that if um, there was already discussions about putting a cap on the number of licenses, which is what would have put value on them as far as selling your license to someone else. And um, they were afraid that their children would be shut out of the fisheries, that they wouldn't be able to get in there. The older men who were only fishing part time or wanted to feel like they could start fishing again at any time if they got out, were, were concerned about keeping their licenses if they had to have show a certain amount of pound each year.
0: The recreational fishermen had more money to invest in the fight and more political influence, and the numbers were in their favor. They would often argue their contribution to the coast economy exceeded that of commercial fishing. The commercial fishermen knew this. Environmental journalist Frank Terci, who was a reporter at the Winston-Salem Journal during this time, Fishing licenses are not are something people are used
1: to paying and um, and they see real good out of it. That was always the preferred way to raise revenue, but the commercial guys were against it because they understood how vastly outnumbered they were by the recreational and how better plugged in recreational fishermen were to the power structures and um political power that comes with the money. They understood that once recreational fishermen started putting some skin on the table, the licensing money would far, far um, outweigh what commercial licenses were.
0: The licensing issue he is talking about was one of the key controversies during the moratorium. Licensing was a big topic of conversation. Before the moratorium, recreational fishermen didn't need a fishing license. However, during this process, sport fishing clubs advocated for a recreational fishing license, knowing there was power in numbers. But average anglers saw it as another tax. Commercial fishermen were afraid their licenses and gear would be limited, which threatened their very way of life. Here's Dan Whittle, a lawyer, who was a policy advisor for the North Carolina Assistant Secretary of Natural Resources from 1995 to
7: 1997. He tended to to Uh, interact with families uh, who had been commercial fishing for generations and you know they tended to wear their heritage you know as a badge and I mean that respectfully you know with great honor uh, and that their their coming to these meetings participating in this process was uh, was honoring their ancestors who had done this. Uh, It's what they had been doing since they were kids their children. It's what they knew. It's what they liked to do. Harker's Island and other communities that were much more heritage-based tended to, to be much more fierce in their uh, opinions about the government or opinions about people who didn't live on the coast. There was a fair amount of uh, sort of religious uh, uh, underpinnings to all this. And, and I think I mean that in two ways. One sort of uh, heritage as a religion, fishing as a religion, but more importantly, uh, in North Carolina at least, faith is tends to be very important to fishermen, and you have know, Christian faith predominantly, and, uh, and you would see that come up a lot in public hearings. People would talk about how, you know, God, they, it was a God-given right. That created an interesting uh, element to a public policy debate because it meant that it wasn't always uh, a matter of just trying to figure out rationally sort of what made sense, how to divvy things up, how to, you know, use uh, sci- the scientific method to establish a catch limit for fish stocks.
0: But sports fishermen felt emotional connections to the coast and the fisheries, too. Jerry Shill, former director of the North Carolina Fisheries Association, the main lobbying group for commercial fishermen, remembers.
5: I'll never forget the time, the first time I heard the term messers when they were talking about the recreational commercial gear license. They're not commercial fishermen. They're recreational fishermen like to mess around with some gill nets or some crab pots. And they were called messers, and they started using that term. I mean, it wasn't derogatory. Uh, Then-Senator Charlie Albertson, he talked about this at the Joint Legislative Commission on Seafood and Aquaculture. They would take mules. You know, before there were trucks and stuff, you know, the, the folks from duplin county and that area where he was from they would the churches that it was an experience they would take a, a some mules and some barrels and go to the coast and catch a mess of fish for their fish fries and they'd salt them down they didn't call up some fishmonger on the coast and order them they went it was a it was part of the church activity you know it was it was From what Charlie said, it was quite an activity.
0: Moratorium Steering Committee Chairman and Recreational Fisherman Bob Lucas remembers being frustrated with both interest groups.
2: I would say there were degrees of unity. First of all, I think everybody was united in wanting it to work, particularly once we got into it. And I think most people could see, wait a minute, this isn't just an exercise. Probably the closest that came to derailing the process politics but what kept that from happening was the broad base of the group particularly the commercial guys because the commercial guys had never really bought into anything because they saw government as the devil doing nothing but regulations to keep them from making a living and some of their complaints were very valid and true the biggest complaint I have about the recreational guys was the lack of patience. I mean, they wanted it and wanted it now. And they wanted this banned and that banned. And, and some of the stuff they wanted banned, they just,
0: they just didn't understand. I didn't understand. Not until I got into it. Despite the conflict, there was one thing everyone seemed to agree on. The importance of protecting our water from pollution. Massive fish kills due to pollution and algae blooms along many of North Carolina's rivers during the moratorium period created hysteria in North Carolina and beyond about the state's water quality. Fish markets along the East Coast refused to take fish from North Carolina. Lawmakers, including eventual Governor Bev Perdue, staged a fish fry along the banks of the noose as a publicity stunt to prove the fish were edible. Here's Sandy Siemens-Ross.
6: And there was only one common denominator from north to south. And that is, no matter what they do, if they don't take care of habitat and water quality, we will have no fisheries. It was just a no-brainer.
0: In October 1996, after years of research, debate, and public forums, the Moratorium Steering Committee sent a report of their findings to the General Assembly. The men and women involved in drafting the suggestions anxiously waited to hear what the General Assembly would do with the information. Here's Pam Morris again.
3: It was a bad time. It was a very dark time for everybody. So, you know, a great sense of unease settled in. Right after this occurred, they fired the Division of Marine Fisheries Director. So when that report was released, the auxiliary got a meeting up in Davis Shore. So what we did was, at night, the auxiliary disbanded. We formed the Carteret County Fishermen's Association, and the auxiliary had two or three thousand dollars, I think, in their account. We took that money and rented buses, and then everybody chipped in too. And we took four hundred head to Raleigh to this meeting in the Legislative Office Building. This was about the moratorium, so they were going to go vote on all this mess. So we took four hundred of our people up there. And went to this meeting. Couldn't speak. We were just there. We protested. We had signs and everything. And they voted not to do anything. And that tore me up. I was so angry.
0: It was difficult to get the legislature to move on the recommendations. Rogue legislators introduced independent fishery regulatory bills, including a proposal to ban fishing nets while the reform was being written and there was a period when folks had no idea what was going to come from the moratorium period. Eventually, a formal draft of the reform that included several key recommendations was assembled into a single bill. One, create fisheries management plans to ensure the long-term viability of the state's commercially and recreationally significant species. For the first time, saltwater species would be managed under a Fisheries Management Plan, or FMP, using the best science available and advisor input to be revisited every five years. Two, restructure commercial fishing licenses. Prior to the moratorium, anyone could buy a commercial fishing license from the state and licenses were tied to the boat, not the individual. The FRA created a standard commercial fishing license and a retired standard commercial fishing license, but applicants had to go before an eligibility board to show prior experience in the industry. It also created a recreational commercial gear license for folks who use limited gear to catch a mess of fish or shrimp for subsistence purposes. They were bound to recreational possession limits and couldn't sell their catch. 3. Manage the Marine Fisheries Commission and reduce the regulatory committee from 17 to 9 members. Three commercial fishermen, three recreational fishermen, a scientist, and two at-large members. 4. Establish coastal habitat protection plans for wetlands, spawning areas, and threatened and endangered species habitats. Bob Lucas, chairman of the steering committee, remembers the biggest hurdle in the process. The biggest vote was not the legislature.
2: It had to go through seafood and aquaculture committee before he could make it to the floor and i went to a meeting in the afternoon and made a presentation on that and i thought this is not going to make it this isn't going to make it and if we don't make it it's, all this works for nothing you had had some commercial guys and recognize they had gotten to a few of these politicians and you could tell they weren't going to vote for it to his credit i called Governor Hunt that evening. I mean it was a big thing for him too. I mean, can't tell you how much publicity it got. Well he sat down and hand wrote notes. If it wasn't to every committee member, it was it was close. And they were delivered, I saw them, and they were personal notes from Jim Hunt telling them how much this meant to him and that he would appreciate the vote, it went
0: right on through. Right on through. Former Governor Beth Perdue.
4: I was Appropriations Chairman by then, so it came right through my hands. And I had uh, Senator Bassnight involved with me, and so we were torn. I mean, we knew the uh, impact that any kind of massive reform could have on both industries, and the moratorium It had some very negative as well as positive impacts on both industries. But again, the consensus legislation that was passed was something that none of us liked a whole lot, but everybody knew was better than nothing.
0: On August 14, 1997, Governor Jim Hunt signed HB 1097, the Fisheries Reform Act, into law. It was done. B.J. Copeland.
5: We had about five major recommendations. And all five of those got approved by the General
0: Assembly. That's a remarkable thing. Probably never happened again. But one major thing was missing from the legislation, an enforcement mechanism and budget plan for coastal habitat protection plans, the very things designed to protect water quality, and the one thing everybody agreed needed to be done. Sandy Siemens-Ross.
6: By the time the bill got to mark up in the General Assembly, and that's when the final version's been written, and all the stakeholders are brought in to review it for the language before it's actually filed. At the At the table was every major environmental group in the state and the CCA who was there with three lobbyists. And when we got to the part about the habitat and water quality protection plans that they were to be developed and implemented, there was no effective date. And I said, wait a minute, I said, this this doesn't have a hammer. There's nothing in here to make this happen. And there was absolute silence at that table. No one would speak up and say anything. And Bill Holman, who later became head of the Clean Water Trust Fund, was representing one of the environmental groups and he was sitting directly across the table from me. And I'll never forget the look on his face and how sad he looked. And he looked up and he said, you're right.
0: Coming up next week, part three Hindsight is 2020. The stakeholders who helped develop and act and enforce the 1997 Fisheries Reform Act reflect on 20 years of change. What worked? What needs to change? What issues face our coast today?
7: It's been almost 20 years. Uh, it's probably time to dust it off uh, and to open it back up and, and to revisit how we manage our resources.
4: That kind of energy around fishing, again, I would hope that it isn't because of a lack of uh, passion or anger or organization from the folks who are involved in the industry. But there's some reason, there's some reason it is not even near, I'm not even sure, my mother used the analogy, it's not on the front burner, but in this issue I'm not sure it's in the kitchen anymore.
5: We have pollution problems. Uh, habitat destruction, uh, building too close to the water, and we're turning back the clock on that. So yeah, we got problems. It worked, I think
2: very well. I think it worked very well uh, up until you know the late uh, 2000s. I
1: think we made quite a few mistakes here at the beginning,
2: but we were pretty naive. We didn't have any real political experience. We were going on um, face value and uh, take people at their word for what they were doing and that sort of thing and and we were babes in the wood
0: thank you for listening to the special series of lo and behold the fisheries reform act a podcast by bitten grain this series was made possible by the north carolina sea grant community collaborative research grant program and the interviewees who gave their time to share their story Collaborators included Jimmy Johnson of the Albemarle-Pamlico National Estuary Partnership, Oral Historian and Archivist Mary Williford, Barbara Garrity Blake of Duke University Marine Lab, Karen Willis-Amspacker of Core Sound Waterfowl Museum and Heritage Center, Sandra Davidson, Baxter Miller, and Ryan Stansel of Benton Grain, and journalist Susan West.